This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We hope you're enjoying the Mutual Audio Network. Stick around, there's much more to come. The following audio drama is rated G for general audience. Welcome back to Mutual Presents. I'm Jack Ward, and this is still season two with our look back at MadCon 2021 from last July. This week, we have the fourth outing on Sunday with Soundscape. It's a doozy as Lothar Tuppen invites Dane Leonardson, Austin Beach, and Michael Stokes to talk about their favorite subject, production. Enjoy! Hi everyone and welcome to Soundscape. I'm Lothar Tuppen. I've been acting, writing, and producing in the audio drama world since 2010. I'm the creator of The Sword of the Crimson Tatters, The Degazian, and The Tainted Noctuary, among other productions, and I'm proud to be a founding member of the Mutual Audio Network. This is going to be a panel where we get into everything mixing, sound effect creation, wherever this conversation goes. And with me for this panel is in alphabetical order. Austin Beach, who is a self-taught sound designer whose plan of audio drama world domination is taking a little bit longer than expected. You can hear his work on Winnebago Warrior, Dark Send, several 11th hour productions, a few Electric Vicuna productions, and Wordtastic Kid Agents. Next is Dane Leonardson. Dane is a senior sound designer, dialogue editor, composer, and writer at Fool and Scholar Productions. He works on series such as Vast Horizon, Dark Dice, The White Vault, and Wordtastic Kid Agents. He recently composed music for A Haunting Beyond the Lake, which achieved a first place victory in the 2021 UK International Radio Drama Festival. Congratulations, that's awesome. His past work involves several different selections from 11th Hour Productions, Liberty Critical Research, and Dark Send. And finally, we have Michael Stokes. Michael is a musician, composer, and a recording and mixing engineer. He is also the owner of a small home recording studio and has been recording and mixing music, audio drama, and audiobooks since 2009. Most notably, he was the engineer of the Parsec award-winning serial audio drama HG World by Jay Smith and the 2013 Mark Time Silver award-winning audio drama Alone in the Night by Jack Ward. How are y'all doing today? Good. Doing great. How about you? Right on. Doing well. Doing well. So I was thinking of uh, structuring this in a way where we'll start off talking about sort of theory and how we approach things and then get into the praxis of exactly how we do certain things and... uh, Jack has some definite questions to ask, but um, we'll see also where this conversation takes us. First thing I was thinking about is directorial style, or to think of it instead of like cinematography, audiotography. Do any of you have an aesthetic style or styles that are a part of your voice as a director producer? How much does this come into play when you are producing a show? Do you adopt a more transparent style where obvious stylistic elements are restrained? Um, Michael, why don't we start with you? Okay, I would say that I would take the latter approach much more restrained. Okay. Uh, usually I'm supporting a director and producer uh, and I'm just really doing the engineering. So aside from occasional um, taking a little bit of license with the way we create a sound effect or the way we create a soundscape, for me, it's I pretty much am hands off in terms of style. Got it. Austin, how about you? 
Um, really kind of the same thing Michael said. Um, I do have a little bit of freedom, uh, I guess, when it comes to the way things will end up sounding on the projects that I work on. Um, but uh, yeah, I usually work with another writer and another director. Dane, what about you? Um, I get to do different styles that I normally wouldn't do working over at uh, Fool and Scholar because they have a different, they have a few different podcasts to choose from. So one's more like sci-fi and um, the White Vault that I'm working on right now is a little bit more of a medieval feel to it. And so it's got a little bit more of the low end and it's more grungy feeling, whereas the sci-fi is that clean, modern sound. And so it's kind of nice because it forces me to do different styles that I normally wouldn't dab into. Nice. Yeah, for um, for myself, if I'm doing my own thing, then obviously I'll strongly do my own style. If um, I'm working with someone else's script, I will make sure that I whatever style I adopt is appropriate for them, which means also no style might be the style that is appropriate to them. So. Right. I agree. One thing that's nice about uh, oh, oh. I, we we work together, Austin and I, on Wordtastic. And one thing that's nice is we all kind of have a voice in what happens in a scene. Uh, even at the writing process now, we all kind of go through together and all have our, our own take on what will work as far as what we can pull off with the audio and uh, what direction we could we should go and generally with the sound design. Uh, and even just the concepts for the episodes themselves. So that's been kind of a different process and really fun. Um, and I think it's it's really brought out the best final product possible to have three creative minds all kind of inputting into the story itself. Nice. Austin, you agree with that? I agree more. Cool. Oh, absolutely, 100%. Uh, working on Wordtastic with Dane and Steve Schneider, uh, uh, it's been a completely different experience uh, than anything else that I've worked on. Great. Michael, do you normally um, just work with other people's scripts or do you ever have any say in the story if you ever worked on something that you've written yourself and is it a different process for you if you have? I have not written anything myself. Okay. Definitely not a writer. So I usually work, yes, always with other people's scripts. Got it. So considering that audio can't utilize visual dynamics for movement, how do you like to use or what is your approach to things like using the microphone focus in similar ways as a film director would use a camera as a witnessing character, panning, volume, reverb, or other ways of conveying movement and dynamism in your shows? And uh, Michael, why don't we start with you again? Okay. All of the above. Uh, all of that is great for imparting motion. Uh, I would add in automation. Uh, the best way, just think of a, of a grip holding a, a boom mic will move with the actors, the mic will move with the actors, do the same kind of thing um, to, to impart motion. So if somebody's walking on the soundscape from left to right, you want them to slowly pan from left to right, playing with you know, volume, certainly using reverb to not only impart space, but to impart distance in that front to back soundscape, um, all of it. I, I like a lot of motion in the soundscape. I want people moving around because people usually do move around uh, and most of the scripts I work with, it's usually folks that are fairly active in the scene. So I think it adds a lot of you know excitement to the show to hear people moving around, to hear things moving from left to right, front to back. So yeah. all those tools are extremely essential. Is there anything that you have used, and then I'll have the same question for everybody else, but I'm just curious to follow up on that. Is there any tips or tricks that would be like non-intuitive? Here's one that 
very stylistic that was shown in it to me and it was interesting, but I'm not sure it would work, but it did work within the context, which is someone was having a sound move around them and they had more reverb come in and it was behind them. It wasn't photorealistic, but it did show a change. And once you understood the language of that particular piece that you were listening to, you understood and that was there. Is there anything unusual that you have done in that dynamism thing that was um, maybe counterintuitive, but works well, almost symbolically as opposed to realistically? trying to think of a good example um, because you know there are no rules uh, I can't think of anything offhand the, the problem with, with with getting a little bit too stylistic sometimes uh, at least I've had some failures with this is if the exposition doesn't provide context right then you can do something and it's going to just be either lost on the listener or is going to confuse the listener because they really don't understand what's going on. You can set the scene and, you know, the dialogue or the exposition helps people understand that, you know, a character is moving or things are changing. Somebody's walking through a house and the mic is on them versus on the ambient. So things are going to change as they go from room to room as the rooms get bigger, rooms get smaller. But again, if the exposition isn't there, or if the dialogue doesn't support it, I, I think this is a, a place where less is more because it gets confusing. So I can't think of anything like that. Okay. Austin, how yeah, do you I like to know. use dy dynamism? And is there anything that you have done that's sort of unusual that has worked well for you? Um, just to, uh, first off, just to kind of play off what Michael just said, um, uh, he's, he's absolutely right. Um, you could You could lay out every sound exactly as it's supposed to be for a completely realistic scene. But if, if there's no dialogue cues or whatever to suggest what's going on, that you may as well not have anything because it, it may not make sense to the listener. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, yep. Um, as far as your question, um, actually a good example, um, currently a, a scene that I'm working on for Wordtastic, um, I have, uh, we have a character walking through a train station going to, uh, uh, she's going to a rendezvous point to meet someone. So you have, um, you have like the, the overall background ambient sound of the train station itself, but also in order to create movement, you need, you need Pete, like, you know, the sound of people as she's walking past them, you need the sound of them moving past the, the, the listener's point of view in order to give the impression i mean yeah footsteps are great but without without the actual sound of motion it's not going to sound as as realistic mm -hmm. uh, like michael was saying so uh the currently is the scene i'm working on she's moving through this train station so i've got groups of people that uh like she'll, a group will come, she'll walk like purposely through the group of people so you hear them getting closer and then passing on behind her um mm -hmm. it's uh using things like like michael said like reverb uh changing the reverb as they get closer and then changing it back as they get further away things like that uh using pan it, yes uh, we i we do everything we can to try to get as close to a simulated three-dimensional space as we can when we tell our stories nice dane what about you um absolutely uh <clears throat> So I've just, I was thinking sort of how different it is for me to go between shows. Like for example, a show like Vast has sort of a large cast at times. So what they tend to do in that show 
is uh, lock people in at certain pans, like 17 right and 17 left. And then um, a lot of the POV is a camera in a room, you know, and it's stationary. Whereas uh, I work on White Vault, this White Vault uh, miniseries I'm doing, the, the POV never leaves the main character's POV. So um, it's just, it's crazy how different it can be between projects. Um, the difference between making, making sound move around someone who's running through the woods, like a scene I was working on a couple days ago, uh, is so different to work with than like having people run through a room and the, the camera's just sitting there. And so it's been a big challenge is if you're not recording there on set, how do you make it sound like someone's running through a living woods or a, a living crowd without mm -hmm. making that crowd itself sound stationary? Right. So that means you have to begin inserting individual sounds into the soundscape and have them move around someone while they move. And so it gets real tedious and interesting. So I would say it's just, you have to get creative and really think ahead of the the scenes and really base your, your sound selections and uh, your concepts around the POV that's within the project itself. And a right. lot of times you'll save yourself a lot of hassle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something we were mentioning on an earlier panel today was uh, clarifying my, my ideas that what Jack calls, you know, the every, every blade of grass style of, you know, rich soundscape was we should, in my opinion, for the people that tend to that, all of us, I think, on this panel, um, it's best for new people coming in to realize we're not trying to recreate reality because reality isn't interesting. It's like, I don't want to hear the wall of my radiator and all that unless it's telling part of the story. So we're not trying to recreate reality. We're trying to, I was putting it as like, we're trying to create the dream that we are trying to do. And maybe that's a very rich soundscape. Maybe it's going to be a certain way than another. Maybe it'll be more minimalistic. Do what's right for the story. Don't do more just because well, the coffee's got to percolate and the cat's got to meow and it's like you get an ugly brown of sound all mixing together. Right. When we deal with sound effects and which ones we're putting in, when, you, when you're dealing with something to where it isn't already in the script, but you're feeling like you're bringing, you have to bring in more sound effects, is there any general approach you take or any specific examples that you have of like, you brought something else in that wasn't there because it was going to make the soundscape richer, maybe increase the rhythm tension properly or, or anything along those lines. Um, Dane, what about you? Um, one scene pops to mind. Uh, we were having issues with one, getting one sound uh, to move properly in the mix. We had this crazy scene in Wordtastic where at the end, the kid agents have to be extracted and they have this balloon that they inflate and it's attached to a rope above them and a jet comes in and hooks the balloon and it carries them off. And so you have to try and pull that off in sound. And we're like, how in the world? And we ended up using the sound of like straining rope and almost like a, a flag flapping in the wind and nice. uh, had that pan with a creaking wood sound, almost like, I don't know, you just have to kind of get creative. And that, that sort of happened in post because what's awesome is uh, me and Austin, he'll do the, the bass sound design and he'll throw it over to me and I'll do some sweetener effects and whatnot and add music. And uh, then in uh, Fool and Scholar, I do the opposite where I do the bass sound design and then he'd add some sweeteners and uh, the music and everything. So um, I would say, yeah, that's one of the more memorable scenes, getting that 
that uh, plane to grab the kid agents properly and make it sound like, oh my goodness, these kids are being pulled off the ground at crazy breakneck speeds and hauled off the, the scene, you know? Stuff like that is a huge challenge and Wordtastic is full of stuff like that, man. Uh, we have a scene, there was that scene where uh, our Congress is composed of birds, right? Mm -hmm. uh, turkeys and, and whatnot. And there was a scene where uh, while giving a very passionate speech, the director is sitting there speaking and the entire place uh, goes on fire due to a malfunction. And so you've got these birds squawking, a, a fire going, You've got Kowalski trying to to finish his speech because he really wants to get this speech done. And it's just learning how to push all of that into a soundscape without it being completely overwhelming to a listener is a huge challenge. Every episode of Wordtastic, yeah. Steve does not make it easy on us. No, not so, at all. Yeah. Austin, uh, how would you like to expand upon that since the two of you work together so closely? Um. One of my favorite scenes, what was it? Um, oh, uh, a couple of the kid agents are out in the jungle and they're looking for the uh, hidden entrance to an old ancient temple. Um, they've been looking around in the jungle for hours. So obviously, you know, you've got, you know, you've got jungle sounds going on. You got monkeys off in the distance, stuff like that. And uh, the, 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 the girl agent comes upon the entrance finally. She moves, uh, moves some vines aside and when she, she finally realizes that, that's where, that she found it and that's where it is. And as she moves the vines aside, uh, a huge swarm of bats flies out of the, the temple entrance right in her face. And so, uh, you know, you, you've got, you, you, like I said, you've got the ambient sound of the jungle going on around you, but it, it's, it's relatively quiet except for when she starts to move the vines out of the way. And then suddenly, like we added all kinds of extra bass thump to the sound of the, the, the bats immediately coming out of the cave. And it's really kind of a, a, a shocking like moment in, in the story. Like you're not expecting it at all. And I, I created it and it makes me jump every time I hear it. <laughs> nice. That's always great when that happens. I love that. Michael, how about that you? That woke me up one time. <laughs> uh, the thing that always stuck, stuck out to me is I, I mean, I learned as you know, HG World was my learning platform. You know, I took over the show for Jay Smith early on, and um, my only experience with recording and mixing was music. So this was a whole new thing. Um, you learn out, you learn very quickly. Less is more. You learn also very quickly that things don't always sound as you expect them to. So trial and error is absolutely essential. Yeah. I remember being in my backyard and setting up mics and falling on the ground. I wanted the sound of a body hitting the ground. Well, a real body hitting the ground does not sound like the sound effect that we're used to hearing, much like every time somebody pulls a sword, we get that metal shing, and we all know that swords scavenging leather. So, but it's embedded in the, in the cultural psyche. So you have to find things, you know, the, the, the fun, it, sometimes it can be tedious, but you have to find sounds that actually sound like your brain processes them versus trying to uh, do things in reality. Um, and again, I can go back, HG World was very action-packed. You know, it's a, it's a zombie apocalypse, so lots of fun sound effects, lots of 
busy, busy scenes. We got, I remember a scene where one of the actors uh, goes into a grocery store to rescue somebody. It's filled with zombies, goes in with a pair of handheld chainsaws. It was great. It was mayhem. <laughs> but, you know, as Dane and, and Austin alluded to, you have to be judicious. You, you've got to have, you want some mayhem, but you want, you know, certain sounds to stand out because, again, it helps orient the listener's brain to what's really going on. And finding those sounds, the one or two key sounds uh, in that kind of, in that mix for that particular scene uh, can be challenging. And it's, it's, you, sometimes you have to go back to the director and go back and forth and try different things. Um, you have to be very creative. You can't be afraid to try bizarre things. There was another scene. So we had a zombie who had become, uh, had been, had his head cut off and the zombie was still alive. And the brain was still okay. Um, so we had this, and the director, writer, very creative, at one point has this head inside of a bucket being carried around. So uh, this person is going to dispose of this head, but the head's still talking and it's in a bucket. So I've got to make uh, a voice sound like it's coming from a head in a bucket that's bouncing around in the bucket. Uh, it, it took days of playing around with different kinds of items, different kinds of buckets, doing it outside, doing it inside. But if, you're, if you love it and you're willing to go the extra mile to get that, that moment where you listen to it and go, oh, that is just... I love it. Um, then usually the director, producer will love it too. And you can come up with some amazing things that have nothing to do with reality. Yeah. You know, that's, don't look to reality all the time, just experiment. Yeah, another thing we were mentioning earlier is uh, how um, we're really dealing with symbolism, not true signification. You don't want exactly the right sound, like a gunshot in real life doesn't sound like what you want to hear in dramatic or here's another one we always think of that high-pitched eagle cry which eagles don't sound like that that's usually a hawk sound right so you got to put the hawk sound in because that's the audio symbol that people will identify with and go into and go that's now what's happening in the show um i want to keep some of the questions to the end but david blue put one in that is appropriate to what we're talking about now which is would you agree that specific volume especially changing volume is a simple easy way to convey movement how would you agree disagree or implement that into a um, into an actual effect that you were doing. Michael, why don't we start with you? All right, sure. Volume for, uh, for front to back. So if a person's walking away, the footsteps get quieter. If it, uh, the, all the sounds of that person, uh, especially if the camera is stationary, will get quiet as they move away. They get louder as they move towards. So volume for front to back, absolutely. Dane, what about you? Uh, I would echo exactly what he said. It's great for, for distancing yourself from the POV, um, I usually couple it with a filter or uh, and reverb, something like that, and uh, automate accordingly to make it sound like they're, the volume's going down along with the reverb kind of going up and the, the filter starting to kick in more. So if you can, if you can just uh, couple it with a couple of things, it will, uh, it will be way more effective uh, immersiveness-wise. Mm -hmm. What about you, Austin? Yeah, I would just echo what Dane said. Yeah, I would say that uh, using volume is kind of, uh, it, it is great, but I would use it as just your first step. I would also, like Dane said, add, add, add a little bit of reverb, mm -hmm. stuff like that. 
Something I was going to ask you about the scene that you were talking about where the person was coming and, you know, they were sort of crossing and the camera was center panned. Um, I did a similar scene and one of the things that kind of worked for me, and I'm wondering if you've dealt with this and maybe have some suggestions, not only did I have it where they're being coming at me, but then as I got closer to that center, they moved over to the left or the right because now they're passing the person's shoulders. Using that kind of dynamic along with volume and reverb really creates it. Have you ever had any um, challenges with that? Really good successes, any tips for anybody? Austin, we'll start with you because you were talking about that and then we'll move around. Uh, yeah, really good successes. Like I said, uh, I was working on that. I'm currently working on that scene for Wordtastic, but I also did one previously for Wordtastic where a character is walking down a street where different things are going on on different sides of the street. So uh, I would, uh, if something was going on on the left side of the street, I would start out with the volume down, obviously. Uh, I would have it slightly panned to the left, or I'm sorry, uh, farther pan to the left. And as it got closer, I would get, uh, the panning would get, uh, I would drop the panning a little bit. It would still be to the left the whole time, but you know, I would drop the, the amount that it was panned as it got closer to the point of view and then uh, increase it back along with the volume and the reverb uh, as, it, as, it went, as it went back behind the, the point of view. Gotcha. Michael, have you had any uh, uh, experience working with that sort of thing or any, any anecdotes you'd like to say? trying to think i mean i i remember doing a couple of street scenes very similar where you've got again you've got street scene sounds that are moving because again as somebody brought up before uh, characters on, on the street even you know, extras as they were they're going to be moving around they have their own motions they have to have their motion you have your pov or you have your your main your main character moving so it, yes it's it can be challenging and again experimentation uh, is the key and finding uh, the right touch to how much panning do you really, really need? Do you mm -hmm. need a lot? Do you need a little? And, you know, it's all about closing your eyes and, and trusting your ears. And, um, but it, it can be a real challenge and not to make it, again, not to make it sort of, you know, audio soup that people can't really understand. Right. So, so yeah, that, done, done that a few times, but uh, I can't think of anything other than spending hours of experimenting with, you know, different levels of panning, um, mm -hmm. volume. Again, they mentioned filters, EQ, absolutely. EQ helps it also impart the idea of distance, uh, especially when you can't use reverb, say, in an outdoor setting. Gotcha. Dane, what about you? Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I would say just get creative with your surroundings. Um, what's happening in the scene and what little sounds can you throw in there as a hint as to where your uh character is in the scene um for example there's been a couple times in this white vault miniseries where it's just like a minute or two of straight the main character is running and buildings are on fire and crazy stuff is happening and they're escaping into the woods and one thing that helps is just taking certain things and having them move while the person's running uh and just realizing, thinking, oh, okay, I'm going into nature. So I threw a river in there that grows closer as the, the fire is fading on the other side. And then I have them actually go through the river. You know, you hear watery footsteps trudging through the water and going out the other side, clothes dripping the water. Um, and just adding all of those little things and constantly thinking of what would be moving in uh where I'm leaving and where I'm going. What would I start to hear and what would I hear less of from where I'm leaving? 
um, just get creative with what you can add in to make it as clear and concise as possible for the listener. Because like Michael and Austin have both said, it's like really easy to confuse a listener, really easy. Um, I mean, you have the script in front of you. Like, just remember that you have the script in front of you, you know, what's happening. So it's way easier for you to understand what's happening than the person on the other side on the end of the product. So you have to really make sure that it's very clear when you're doing panning stuff. Yeah. And, you know, something everybody should realize is in a similar way to music, which also has its own rhythm. Silence helps make music music. Silence helps make an audio drama impactful. If you've got a sound effect coming in, make sure that that really is highlight the way that it should, not because you're watering it down with all sorts of other things that are distracting as well. This right. is probably a good time to go into more specifics of what we do in the, in the actual practice of what it, and that'll tie into a new question that we'll have in a few moments by way of uh, Stephanie, jo- actually Pete Lutz by way of Steve- Stephanie Jordan on the thing. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about when we're first building the sound beds and the atmosphere that everything else is going to be operating within in a scene. What are some of your thoughts about how to make a, an appropriate atmospheric ambience sound bed panning differently appropriately to make it feel really dynamic as opposed to here's the mono track of background train station and it never shifts and all that. What are some of the things that you think is a good best practice for yourself and for anybody else to lay down a solid foundation that will be a good place to start to then be adding other things to the soundscape? And Michael, why don't we start with you? Thanks. Um, Trying to think, it's it's been a while. Uh, But when it comes to ambiances, I absolutely, like to get uh, to copy the track and then split things hard left hard right in terms of the ambiance so one it sounds to me a little bit more fuller i also use a stereo widener on those channels mm-hmm. uh, to get to as wide as possible it also disperses the sound nicely that the, the important the more important information about the dialogue and those key sound effects that help you know push the story forward have more space in that middle-ish area because I do like to use everything from far left to far right, but I want my soundscape really far left and far right. Add a little reverb, add a stereo widener, make it as diffuse and bring it back in, you know, backwards in the scene so that, you know, again, you're presenting the really interesting stuff, the stuff you want your listener really paying attention to closer in the scene. Cool. Dane, what about you? Um, I would say for ambiances, um, it's really important for me to find the most simple base ambiance and add as much individually as I can, uh, because that makes it come alive. So if you find, like, for example, if I'm building a coniferous forest, like I do in this current white vault, uh, what I want to start off with is just a good base wind. Um, and not have a recording that has all of the birds and all of the wind and it has deer in the background it has everything that you could possibly want baked in instead I think it's better to find a simple version that's loopable and then you can add and augment that recording and make it really come alive and become personal to your project cool Austin what about you yeah, uh, as an, another example of exactly what Dane just brought up, um, say, for instance, in Wordtastic, I, I know you guys uh, said earlier, uh, sometimes less is more. Um, for Wordtastic, we have scenes that vary. We have scenes that are super hardcore in-depth soundscapes, 
but then, you know, we also have the briefing room where like all of the information is given at the beginning of each episode. Uh, Director Kowalski is talking to his agents at the beginning, briefing them for the upcoming mission or whatever. So, you know, obviously there's not a hardcore ambient sound going on in the briefing room, but what I do like to do is, uh, so, so say for instance, you hear a little bit of the, the air conditioning fan that's going on, uh, just barely, just a little bit. You can hear it going on in, in the room that they're in. Maybe there's also a ticking wall clock off in the, over on the other side of the room that you can just barely hear. But then mm -hmm. also, since they're in an office room or a briefing room, what, they're obviously in some sort of a complex or whatever. What's going on outside the room, even though they're in a building? So I'll take, I'll have like a, a, an office hallway that I'll add like a low pass filter to and muffle it that you can hear just outside the door. You know, it's not distracting, but you can hear that there is another layer to the sound that, you know, just helps fill out the, the background a little bit. Gotcha. We have a Absolutely. couple of comments from David Daniel French. There's a great way plugin called Bauer Motion that you can use to set up an audio panning feature on track. I love it and use it often. And for ambience, often, uh, I often add to my stereo widener and MS control where I turn the mid down and the sides up. So something from Daniel French. Let's talk a little bit about awesome. how you can, yeah, it's, yeah, I've only used it a little bit, but yeah, yeah definitely want to do that more. When we're building sound effects, what are some of the things that you would do if you're crafting something, not in a practical recording thing, but you're layering stuff that you've already got recorded and you're building up? What are some of your um, processes of doing that? Do you do everything like outside of the, you know, you, you, make, you figure out where it needs to go and you build it and then you bring it in? Or what are some of your um, practices for actual designing a new sound effect if you don't have one that's already there? And Dane, why don't we start with you? Okay, so um, one of my very first audio dramas, I had a scene where a guy was just digging around the dirt with his hands and it was mud. And uh, I had to get creative, obviously. I didn't, I, it was back before I really understood that I could subscribe to like Sound Snap or there was places like Free Sound. I didn't really know what I was doing back then. So I was kind of going by the seat of my pants and I just took like some tortilla chips, some old stale tortilla chips, put them in a bowl, put some water in there and started mushing it around with my hands. And it sounded like mud uh, and just figuring out uh, replacements for the real thing is very effective. You'd be surprised in, in movies and video games, how many times a sound for a, a slice of like if somebody gets stabbed with a sword or something like that, it's like somebody cutting a piece of fruit or something, you know? So just get creative with what's around you and uh, just look for ways to do something different and new. That'll sound cool, but just experiment, grab things and you have a microphone, just start experimenting with what you have. Michael, what about you? I'm going to have to agree with the experimentation thing. It really is. Um, I remember my first time encountering some classic Foley uh, sound effects and, and reading up um, on how they produced sound effects, you know, Foley type effects for, for, you know, golden age of radio, kind of radio drama stuff. And it's amazing what they used to actually make things that we absolutely believe were uh, not, you know, that the actual source of the sound was something very, very different. Like, 
my favorite one was using a wooden clipboard uh, to make a gunshot. Um, again, a, a clipboard snapping doesn't exactly sound like a gunshot, but if you add reverb, you add some bass, you, you, know, you play around with EQ and compression, mm -hmm. uh, and suddenly you can then really project the idea of the sound versus you know that real thing. So, you know, read up about you know reading. Uh, it was a big thing I did. I did a lot of reading uh, back in the early days just to understand how people before me made sound effects when they had very limited you know uh, materials to work with. And you know, a foley operator on a radio set had to have everything he needed right there in this you know in his foley core. And it was amazing, you know, going back and listening to that, and everything sounded absolutely uh, believable, um, yet nothing was as it seemed. So, yes, you have to be very creative. You have to understand how to, to enhance and embellish that sound using your, you know, your plugins, your reverbs, delays, um, compression, EQ, all that kind of stuff. So, right. Cool. Austin, how about you? Um, I think about uh, there's a, a, a scene in the season finale of Wordtastic season one. Uh, the kids are in, they've just gotten into a prop airplane and they're uh, trying to escape a, a mountain complex in, uh, in South America, in Peru. Um, there is an EMP bomb deep inside the mountain that is about to go off. And so if they don't get their plane far enough away from the mountain before it blows up, obviously the EMP bomb's gonna disable their plane and they're gonna fall out of the sky. So you have the ambient sound of the, the plane that they're in. You obviously, you think you're inside a, of, of a prop plane, it's gonna be pretty loud. You know, it's pretty loud inside of a prop plane. It, it, it's kind of an overwhelming sound, but how do you also add in the sound of an underground bomb, not just a bomb that's right outside the plane or even on the plane, but a, plane, a bomb that's, you know, several hundred yards away underground inside of a mountain. And then you, the sound of the shockwave from the bomb catching up with the plane and then the plane's engine sputtering out temporarily and the kids screaming because the engine just died and the plane's plummeting. And, uh, you know, the, the music's all, all, all uh, death-defying music and, and the tension's just high and the kids are screaming and all of a sudden the, the, the plane engine comes back on, comes back to life and the plane levels out and kids scream in, in excitement because they're saved. That was a hardcore, intense scene to put together because, like I said, the sound of just the plane itself is overwhelming enough, but you got to be able to hear everything else that's going on in the scene on top of the plane. It, it was a it was an intense scene to put together. Steve, Steve. we're looking Steve. at you, Steve. <laughs> These writers, man. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, it just words on a page to you, you know. But uh, yeah. The, um, right. yeah, when I write for my own self, I have to have arguments all that time. Um, something for that I, I completely agree with with the experimentation because. And, and playing around with stuff because there's one time where I got a really cool vocal effect by applying things that should only be technically used for music onto a vocal track and going, wow, that sounds really weird and creepy. What can I do with it? You play around with other things like that. So if people are looking for the way to do it, completely agree, just like play around and get weird. You may not use it, but you'll still have a good time and go, that sounded silly. I'm never doing that again. Yeah. Um, another thing is never be 
afraid of using the human voice. A really simple way to make a growly monster sound is to just record that I am going to attack Austin Beach. Slow it down, shift the pitch, and you go, and it sounds like some dinosaur is about to jump on him. You can make all sorts of weird monster sounds by doing weird stuff like that. And it's a whole lot of fun to play around with. Um, yeah. Uh, Pete's question is, hey guys, Pete here. What effect that you created in your early days before you knew anything, do you still use from time to time? For example, in 2014, I made the sound of a booze bottle being uncapped and a drink being poured, which I used in a recent production. How many of your old sound effects do you all keep? And how many is it like, nope, never looking at that again. Please don't remind me of that thing that I did. Austin, I've, let's start with you. I've never gotten rid of a sound effect. I have literally gigabytes and gigabytes and gigabytes and gigabytes. I'm, I'm probably bordering on a terabyte at this point of, of sound effects, honestly. Uh, yeah, because you, you never know what, what you're going to be able to use it for down the road. You may not use that exact sound effect, but you may be able to take that sound effect and alter it slightly to make it sound. It's to make a completely different sound that you may need. Yeah. I don't ever get rid of any yep. sound effects at all. Right? Completely agree. Dave? Same. I've got a, a massive Google drive folder. Um, yeah. I just keep adding to it. I spend uh, a lot of time just uploading to that folder, honestly. So, yeah, um, you never know when you can recycle a sound effect and even couple it with something else and mutate it to be something else completely. Yep. And uh, you should never throw away a resource, even if you've used it once. Who cares? I agree. Michael, what about you? I, I couldn't agree anymore. I never threw anything away. <clears throat> First show I worked on, again, HD World, I, the Jason at Fine Director Writer, it was very insistent that we not recycle sound effects. Mm -hmm. He wanted everyone, every set of footsteps to be different. He wanted no two stabbing sounds the same, no two beheading sounds the same. Very hard to do. Um, yep. And again, most people don't notice. So the push was there to, to constantly, to not recycle, to come up with something slightly you know, different every time. And like Austin said, you find ways to take that thing, tweak it, and make it a little newer, a little different with the essential elements, you know, uh, in for all those things, you usually need three or four sound effects pushed together. There's no, right. you know, uh, stabbing, you know, cutting a zombie's head off. There's no sound effect for it. You have to come up with different kinds of things that are going to come together, a bone crunch or a skin tear, you know, uh, some sort of splishy noise. Um, and yeah, never, never, ever throw anything away. You will use it again, or you will be able to pull that out of the vault and, and come up with something, uh, or at least two thirds or halfway there by flipping some things around and changing some things and you get that brand new sound effect. Yeah. We just had a question about that of how many squishy melons did you get through per episode? Oh, I don't know if I used melons. I, I did. Uh, I did have a, a nice collection of sound effects uh, that were already meant to sound like blood splurting out of something. Uh, what they what they were what the original sound effect was, I don't know. They certainly sounded convincing when used by themselves. Yeah, it kind of sounded a bit like maybe a melon being squished or something like that. But when used, you know, uh, 
in a, the appropriate balance with other with a bone snap or a bone crunch or something could have been Doritos being crunched in the bowl. You put it all together and suddenly with the magic uh, uh, making sound effects and using you know, plugins, um, you can suddenly make the whole thing sort of convincing enough. Right, mm -hmm. so that if it's a, the exposition and the dialogue provides enough cues, the audience knows that the protagonist is swinging a sword at a zombie's head. Well, then, I mean, the rest is it doesn't take a whole lot to convince the listener that what that sound is was the zombie uh, losing their head. So, yeah, yeah, it uh, does. That's the key thing. I mean, the, the, the context has to kind of be there for some of these things. Gotcha. Yeah, um, Jack was reminding me something. I don't know if any of you worked with or are familiar with Stevie K. Farnaby's stuff from Broken Sea Audio. He did a number of things way back when, and especially Escape from New York is his sort of like big thing. But he was an odd mixer in that he would do an entire show in one setup. He had a professional setup where he had the hard drive and the memory to have a whole 30 minute show and he'd see it as one big hole. He would design sound effects for every single one and then destroy them because he never wanted it to be the same twice, like you were saying, Michael. And he forced himself to always recreate it, to have it unique. And I'm like, I don't know what kind of crazy you are, but you're, you're, you're wonderful, you're genius. And no, I don't want to do it that way. Please, no, that's a nightmare. But that's, that's another extreme end of things. What are, um, what are some key tools that people can use to make it? I know Jack wanted some, us to give some direct advice and being creative is great. And I think it's absolutely essential. There is no easy silver bullet solution to making a great you know, sound effect, but what are some of the tools that you have come across, either effects, filters, plugins, techniques that have been something that you go, if I knew that when I first started, I would have been so much better. What are some tips that you could maybe um, give, give a new person who's trying to do a little sound design in the sense of creating sound effects or things from the digital point of view to get started? Dane, how about you? Uh, I would say that once again, just get creative with it. Um, I remember I was actually talking when I first started, I was able to pick the minds of some of the, what I, who I consider to be some of the best audio drama producers ever, people like uh, um, Jack and Cade. Uh, I was picking his brain one time when I was like, man, what do I do? I'm, I'm trying to get this sound of like uh, metal tearing, like a big ship, a big metal, like Titanic style ship tearing. And I can't figure out what in the world to do. And he said, well, do you have like aluminum foil, anything like that? Uh, do you have a baking sheet, something like that? If you want some big metal bangs on the side of the ship, he said, now just pitch shift that down, uh, add some reverb to it. And I mean, if you just get creative with what you have around you and the sound effects you can find online, just think of ways you can possibly turn them into what you want. Uh, that's what I would say my biggest piece of advice is going to be because there's going to be times where you just you have to do it yourself um, you're not going to be able to find the right sound no matter what yeah. because there are things that are just who's going to go and record a cactus being chopped in half uh specifically you know yeah. with a butter knife would it even sound like that to people anyway <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah exactly that's an entire other thing you can you can record something like ex how it is and it doesn't sound right yeah. You know, you can cut a, cut a piece of fruit with a, a knife and it just doesn't sound like you're cutting a piece of fruit. So, um, yeah, yeah I would just say stuff's great. I, I highly recommend anybody should listen to Edict Zero. It's a masterclass on how the heck did he do that? Yeah. Right. And like with nothing. 
with nothing. He, he, yeah, exactly. He's he's used like a fifty dollar microphone and free sound effects his entire life. Yeah. So. If, if you want an example of being able to do it with nothing, Jack Kincaid's Edict Zero is, is what you should listen to mm-hmm. because he does a lot of work just in, in his DAW to make it all come alive. Yeah, which shows it's, not, it's never the tool, it's the person using it that can do it. And right. we can all learn a little bit more. Austin, what about you? Yeah, uh, just uh, playing off what Dane said, just think in terms of how you can alter an everyday sound to come up with the sound that you want. Uh, you can uh, you can double up on a track and, and pitch shift just one track out of the two, or you can even triple up on the track and add different pitch shifts to each track. You 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 can you can add a a, a typical uh, guitar flanger to to a voice. You 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 can you can uh, there's all different things. Music effects do wonders to the voice, like you had mentioned earlier. Uh, yep. There's all different ways that you can come up with the sounds that you're looking for. Adding in uh, you can. Uh, Say you have, uh, like Dane, like Dane mentioned, uh, tearing a hole in the side of a ship. Say you do have some aluminum foil. You can, uh, if you have access to uh, a, a, like a sound subscription, like SoundSnap, you can go uh, download just some, some, some subsonic bass noises that you can add into the background of the sound of the aluminum foil that you're using. I mean, there's, there's endless ways that you can come up with the sounds that you need. Right on. Michael, what about you? What advice would you give? My advice would be to truly learn the tools that you're using for your craft. Um, I remember playing around, uh, sort of thought I knew how to work with EQ, sort of thought I knew how to work with compression. Take the time to, all, all the really nice DAWs come with a, a really nice full set of, of plugins that will get, can get you at least 75, 80% of the way, uh, if not right. all if you understand how to use them, truly understand what a compressor does and truly understand what all those knobs do when you change them. Um, same with every, every reverb, delay, EQ, every last pitch shifting, all of that. Look, play with it. Go to the extremes. Yeah. Um, and Absolutely. understand once you do that, then you have an idea. You, you, you kind of know how to get it close right out of the gate because you understand how to use your compressor. You know, and there that, that, that again, like Austin was saying and Dane was saying, this is how you take a simple sound and, and learn how to embellish it mm-hmm. with the tools you have. And suddenly you can make something really fantastic um, with not that much work because again, you have that deeper knowledge uh, and there's so much material um, on the internet to, to teach you how to use all these tools. There, most of them, uh, at least when I was learning it, was ba- were based on music. But a source is a source. You know, using compression on a guitar is no different than using a compressor on the human voice or, or a sound effect. It, it does what it does. And if you understand it, if you truly understand it, and you know how to use your tools, well, then you're, you're going to be making better sounds. Yeah. And, right. and to add to what Michael just said, uh, if, if you, you are playing around with different plugins to create the sounds that you're looking for, once you find what you're looking for and you know you're going to need that sound again, save your settings. That's tip number one. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I was going to add to that Three document sets. your process because sometimes it's not even the save it settings. It's I did, first I did this, then I did this with these different plugins and I did that. You get something cool, you're not going to remember it. Always right. document what you're doing so you can right. go back to it and go, I did that production three years ago. I want something similar to that. Pull up the Word document. I want X, Y, and Z. I'm good to go. Um, yeah, what Michael was just saying, it's like, 
it was so daunting to try and learn any audio engineering if you weren't in an actual school for that or had a mentor in some way. Now there's a lot there. And I think the biggest stumbling block is people are scared. It's terrifying to think about this. If you're a creative person, you go, I don't want to learn this technology. Just start somewhere, learn a little bit about right. EQ and keep building upon it. You don't need to know it all tomorrow. You don't have a time limit before you're going to take a test for your degree. Just start having fun with it and learn to be play because that's where it's going to be like, you're going to be better next year than you were this year. And then the year after that, if you keep having fun, you'll keep bringing in, you'll still add to your skill set and go, now I got a new toy to play with. Um, and if, if and you have the access, if you have the ability uh, to talk shop with someone who's willing to, uh, you know, explain some things to you, it's hilarious that I'm in this exact panel because the two people that are on either side of me are the two people that I've learned the most about, about audio production. Uh, you know, Michael taught me how he's the one that convinced me to switch over from Audacity to Reaper and how to set it up properly for the way what I need. And, uh, you know, I've picked Dane's brain uh, countless numbers of times on how to make things sound the way they need to sound. It, it, like, like I said, it's just hilarious that I don't, I'm on a panel with these two. These two guys are the, are the people that I've learned the most from. A lot of us, I know, Austin, you and I sort of came into the audio drama world roughly around the same time it's a great community because we were able to get people that would you know help us because we want the art form to grow and we don't want to right. it's like of course you're, you're interested in this weird niche thing that no one wants to listen to of course come on in let's train you um yeah. it's very accepting that way so this is a great community that way and you can all go like well i don't really like what lothar says but michael's stuff really works with me and you know this that's great you get all sorts of different voices of how that right. that can go Something else I would recommend for people is like, do some searches online of like how to get a demon voice. And you'll get that sample thing that you were mentioning, Austin, of like, you know, duplicate the track, shift the pitches down, do another duplicate, shift the pitches up, mix them all together and you get the weird gravelly voice. Now you've got a standard yeah. thing that everybody knows how to do. And now you can do weird things to make that your own. So you can do research of like, how has someone else done a ghostly voice? You know, where you revert, you, you reverse it, you add the reverb, you flip it back again, all those things that everybody does. And then you, that you add your own flavor on top of that. And so that's something else I'd recommend to people. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, seeing if there's anything in the comments we need to say, here's something from Bill Chessman. Oh yeah, go ahead. I was going to say uh, to piggyback off of what Michael was saying earlier mm -hmm. about really learning the, the default tools that you have in your toolbox when you buy a, a DAW, um, even before I even got into learning what EQ and compression and everything was, I would use a lot of these, you know, you have a lot of these newfangled, um, VSTs where you can kind of automate all of that, where it'll auto EQ and do all of these things for you, like isotope neutron and, and stuff like that. And, um, I actually learned a lot. If you have a program like that, just analyzing what it sounds like before putting it through it seeing all the individual steps that it took to get it there and you begin to grasp for yourself what they're doing with eq what they're doing with compression and you begin yeah. to understand these concepts one by one just by by watching that process so if you do have your hands on a, a, a program like that it's very useful in that way and i learned a lot from doing that yeah that's a great way of like backward engineering your own knowledge you know, from what right had. yeah that's really cool so digital vocal 300 pedal was a cool multi-effects pedal made for voice but can be used for all sorts of stuff including sound effects and it's made to use for xlr connections so that's a cool tip for somebody if they want to do that um 
when it comes to specific software uh, things that you would recommend for people, taking into account that um, we all use the tool that fits best in our own hands and what we like for our own predilections, what are some of your preferences of things that you would like people to start with? I know, uh, Michael, I know Jack is waiting for the big war between Audacity and, uh, and Reaper between you and I, but I just, I use Audacity because I like it, but I've tried Reaper and I think it's a great program. And now I'm playing around with Isotope RX, which I can't use with Audacity. So kind of opening it up here. Do any of you like using multiple tools? What tools do you like to use? What things would you recommend for people if they need to be steered away from something? Michael, why don't we start with you? All right, thanks. Um, Audacity is a fine tool. You know, you got to work with the tool that works best with you. You know, the, the, all of these tools, I don't care what DAW it is, you're going to get quality sound. You're going to get out of it what you put into it. It doesn't matter if it's Pro Tools, if it's Reaper, if it's Cubase, it doesn't matter. They're all going to, they're all fine tools and they all work great. Um, they all use floating point calculations to, to get the best kind of sound possible recorded in and, and, and mixed out. So it doesn't matter. And in, in, in trying to decide which is the better one is, is a fool's uh, pursuit. Um, if Audacity works for you, use Audacity. You know, absolutely. You can do multi-track stuff in it. I have in the past. Um, I, I landed on Reaper early because it had, it basically I could use it for free. Uh, with just a mag screen to try to really try it out. Um, so again, find the tool that works best for you, ask around, see what people are doing. Try to choose one that has a big user base. The more folks that use that tool, the more support you're going to get online. People have encountered the same problem that you're you're encountering. Um, I find that very, very helpful. Um, you know, plugins, get the best plugins you can afford. Um, absolutely don't ignore the plugins that come with your DAW. Um, they're usually purely digital, which is fine because, you know, you need digital plugins as much as you need any of the annual analog emulated plugins. Um, it, when it comes to buying plugins, I know Austin's heard it before, um, sign up for all the newsletters for all the major plugin manufacturers. They're going to go on sale several times a year. Do not pay list price for a plugin. That's for, for the big, you know, recording studios to pay, not for us. But you can get right. any ways, almost any ways plugin if you wait for $29, even though it lists for 300. You, you, if you're patient, you can build up your plugin library. Again, understanding what the basic plugins do is a huge advantage to being able to test drive a, a new plugin in the 14 days trial we to give you so you can understand and AB it against what you already have and decide, is it worth 30 bucks? Am I gonna get my 30 bucks back with buying this fancier plugin or this analog emulated plugin versus what I already have? So um, find what works best for you. I'm just so much good software out there. I, I can't even, uh, I remember using uh, free plugins for a long time and they were all good too. Um, just, I don't think there's any bad software out there. But again, I try to go with stuff that, that, that has a good user base because again, that's that's very helpful. That is fantastic advice, especially about that user base, because there is nothing better than I have a question. If someone else has asked it, maybe there's an answer. And, you know, the more you can maximize that, the better. Dane, what about you? Uh, I've hopped um, from DAW to DAW over the years. I started in Acid Pro way back in the day. Um, I've 
I've dabbled with uh, Pro Tools, uh, Steinberg stuff. Um, I mean, you name it, uh, Logic, all, all of the, the heavy hitters. And uh, I, I settled on Reaper because um, I was trying to find a DAW that I, I could kind of rapidly learn. And a lot of them seem to lack that. They seem to not be very intuitive, I guess, for somebody who hadn't worked with a bunch of different types of software before. And uh, Reaper just was really intuitive. And I learned so much about it. And the way that it does everything just seems to speed up my process exponentially. Um, so I prefer it. But I'm sure that there's other uh, DAWs that are the exact same way for other people. They're much quicker with the way, like it just works with their brain a certain way to where it makes sense. So like Michael was saying, find the thing that makes sense to your brain that you can use because it's going to be your tool. So it doesn't matter what other people say about your tool. It's your tool. So if you're going to be able to get the best results, stick with that. That would be my advice. Austin coming up to you, but before here's a comment question from Steve Schneider to lead it off. Is it true that your general awesomeness as a sound designer is in direct proportion to the length of your beard? Please answer that and then the original question. It actually is because uh, I actually started growing this beard when I uh, began production on season one of Wordtastic. And my wife has been hounding me every day to cut it off. She hates it. And I told her I, I can't do that. If I cut it off, then the sound design for Wordtastic has just gone out the window. So, you know, I owe it to Steve and Dane, my, you know, my creative partners to maintain my beard. He's like an upside down Samson, you know. <laughs> uh, to add to what to, to add to what Dane was saying about uh, your doll of choice. Um, I like probably the same reason everyone else uses it. I started out on Audacity because I typed in free audio software on Google. What, that was the first thing that popped up. Yeah. Um, I switched to Reaper because I, through coaxing from Michael, I discovered that Reaper could do everything that Audacity can do, but faster. Yes, you can absolutely do anything you need to do audio-wise in Audacity. You, you absolutely can, but Reaper can do everything that Audacity does 10 times faster. Yep. Uh a uh, little anecdote is to, I gave, I gave Reaper a try. And the only reason I'm not using Reaper and why I didn't jump off is because with my Mac, with that particular OS and the particular sound card, it caused a problem with my latency to where I would drop microseconds in any recording. And I took it in, they opened it up, couldn't fix it. I had to buy a new laptop. So I'm still, I'm a little scared to do it just because I think it's me. I'm probably cursed in the same way that I'm going to be the person that the you know, house is going to fall in on and everybody else is going to be untouched by the hurricane. Um, yeah. But that's... So now you know how it feels to be a Windows user. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. With their audio drivers. Yep. Um, we're about half an hour until we end. So let's open it up for questions. And while the questions are coming in, though, something else I'd like to talk about is transitions. A lot of times in scripts, it'll say, you know, trans in, trans out. And unless the writer has a specific stylistic intent, it's up to us. How do you like to approach transitions? And when you can be more creative, stylistic with it, what are some of the things that you have done that you really like that has been really fun or things that you thought of maybe helped the, the narration in the sense that you are helping tell the story through the transition? 
um, and have that tie into the story. There's a little theory and practice together. Um, Michael, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I, I, I never kind of had any kind of approach to go after transitions. I kind of let the mood of peace sort of guide me. So if it was when I did uh, work with Jack on Alone in the Night, which was all about this person out in space, I felt that something more futuristic um, would, would make a nice transition. And I went to a library of sounds I have. I have the uh, Native Instruments Complete, and it comes with a great uh, rompler and, and lots of uh, really great sampled uh, stuff from um, like Heaviosity, where they're taking some normal sounds and they're making them warped. And suddenly you've got this like really powerful, magical kind of futuristic sound. So I try to marry the transition to the, the period of the piece, the mood of the piece. Um, and and I would just usually just jump in and start sampling things and, and see which one spoke to me. I, I can't ever tell you that I ever had a process or a light bulb went off. I just started playing with noises until, and, and, and little, I mean, again, going back to the older pieces, you know, they use a lot of music, a little organ riff or something like that. Uh, and listening to other people's work helps sometimes, you know, uh, so it, it, trial and error for me. Yeah, and when I say process for just for clarity, you just described exactly that of how do you get into the mindset? What are you doing? Not technically what you do, because that's going to be unique each time, but how do, how do each of you approach them? So thank you very much for that. Austin, what about you? Um, probably my favorite uh, scene transition that, I, that we've used is... Uh, our, our show consists of secret agents and those secret agents aren't always together. You know, they split up to, to accomplish different uh, goals in the mission, uh, but they keep in contact with each other through earbud communicators. Mm -hmm. So if you're on say uh, 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 agent Lily's point of view and she calls agent Sarah, you'll hear agent Sarah through uh, the right speaker uh, and filtered to make it sound like, you know, it's a radio signal. Um, but in order to scene transition, I will fade out that, that earbud communicator effect on Sarah's voice and then fade it in to Lily's voice. So it goes from Lily listening to Sarah over the earbud to Sarah listening to Lily over the earbud. Nice. So, so, so then you're not only uh, changing uh, the way the voice sounds, but you're also fading out Lily's ambient background and fading in Sarah's ambient background as you're switching over. So you're literally changing points of view in the story. Nice. Oh, I just think it's uh, transitions could, they're just, it's such a huge topic and they're so important and they can change the flavor of an entire scene, an entire episode. Um, I mean, you really have to do what's best for the story and for the scene right then and there. Like Michael was saying, you really have to let that story kind of speak to you and guide you as you do this. Cause it's, that's with all art, you have to sort of feel things out a little bit. Uh, sure, apply knowledge, but um, you have to be able to feel through some things. And I mean, there's parts where comedically like a hard cut will work great. You know, you hard cut from one scene to another. Like we had this ridiculous scene where, um, this this kid agent it's a it's a pair of kid agents and and the boy kid agent was having to escape out of this 
99 floor building and he was coming down a staircase with uh with somebody chasing him the entire time when it was absolute mayhem and he's screaming the guy behind him screaming and then it would switch back to the other agents just in this elevator listening to some very calming you know music and singing along with the recording and he would cut back and forth between the two of them and it was just comedically perfect to do a hard cut at that time but whereas yeah. you know other times a hard cut will sound awful so you really just have to to feel it out and talk with the director uh, talk with the people that wrote it see if they have some guidance on how they want transitions done but um, you can also do more of a general transition that works really well where where the listener once they hear the transition they absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're moving to the next scene and that's very useful like uh, I did a uh, Batman Year One remake, uh, where I, I re- remade the comic uh, scene for scene, and for the transitions, I did like a a little musical sting with a with a swarm of bats coming at the same time, and that happened every time, and it was really probably one of the most effective uh, scene transitions I've ever put together because it was so defined and it was flavored for Batman. And you could just tell, okay, next scene every time, no confusion. So, I mean, there's merit to a bunch of different ways of doing transitions, but just, yeah, be creative, but not to the point where it distracts from the, what the scene's trying to accomplish. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think just people should realize transitions are very important and it's more than just fade to black, you know, fade up from black or, you know, any of that sort of stuff. Uh, Austin, in the show that you were just in, uh, Right Number, Wrong Party, that Jack wrote, and you did a great job as Parrish. Uh, your, your voice Thank is you. amazing. I loved going through your takes. Thanks. I wanted the scene transitions to represent that he is going deeper into this sort of like mental spiral and we're going deeper and darker. And so I, but I wanted it to still be kind of diegetic. So I took whatever the last noise was in the scene, one, it was a gate, other times it might be dialogue, pitch shift it down, pan it in various places to pop in and then have this sort of like droning sting come up. That droning sting then came in later underneath some of Tanya Maloyevich's stuff that was representing her sort of psychosis near the end of it. And I was trying to do that just to tie the whole thing in to where everything was there in purpose, on purpose. And some people might find that far too stylistic and fussy, but that's what went on. And I think as long as people realize transitions are important, do them with intent. Even if you're not, if you're doing a simple transition, do it because that's what's right, not because it's the only thing you can do. Right. And we've got some questions for the last bit here from Sharon Grunwald. I'm a total audio technology noob. I record in Audacity because I can understand it. Too many features confuse me. My question is this. I hear a lot about Audacity being destructive. What does that mean? I believe that means that we can't undo past a save when we've quit out of a session. Is there anything in addition to that that I might be missing. That's really interesting. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, just basically sharing that what that means is when you saved your session and you closed out and you come back tomorrow and you go, oh, wait, I want to revert back. You can't do undos unless you've saved another copy. Um, for those of you that have used ones that don't have that, what are some of the things that like Reaper and other things do um, that would be a benefit? Michael, can you explain what the really strong benefits are? How far back can you go? So basically, to keep it simple, Reaper in, in the, in the major DAWs, they're going to provide um, sort of a filter for the sound to go through that goes to your, eventually to your master bus and, and, and is what you produce. They don't actually in any way alter the original WAV file that you started with. Whereas in the old, in Audacity has, at least gives you the option of that now. 
So when I first started using Audacity, Audacity was literally pulling that wave file in and, and, and changing the act, doing the computation uh, on the actual wave file so that when you were, when you were done, the wave file was not as it was originally. So that's what we talk about destructive, right? Whereas now, your last time I used Audacity, they, uh, they prompt you as to whether you want to uh, affect the original file or to make you know uh, like a copy. So it's not automatically destructive, mm-hmm. but with the DAW, there's no idea of destruction whatsoever. Your source material remains your source material, and you're going to produce a filtered version of it, that's a whole new file. Yeah. Yeah, let's say, let's say I wanted to cut two words out of a, a, a dialogue sentence and uh, I decide at the end of my project, that was a mistake and I really need those two words back. It could be literally 500 saves later. All I got to do is drag the edge of that, that piece of the track over and there's the words that I cut out six months ago or whatever. Nice. Right. Nice. And we've got a question from Sarah Golding. Hello, gents. What are your top tips for getting the dialogue to sit on or within the soundscapes, depending on need? Are there groovy settings to play with to give precedence to the vocals? Sometimes my main issue is getting the vocals to pop more. I'll just open that up to whoever wants to address that. I'll I'll reiterate what Michael said earlier about uh, moving your ambient sounds to hard left and hard right in your soundscape and keeping all of your dialogue and your your key sound effects centered in the soundscape. I mean, Michael brought that up or mentioned that earlier, but he's he's absolutely right about that. Yeah. So again, going back going back to what I said earlier about understanding the tool. You know, you've got this wide stereo field you can play with. So position pan left to right separates you know you don't want you know everything straight up the middle you want some things in the middle some things 10 percent, some things 25 30 play around with that and you can keep things in their own space but still have everything sound like it's all in the same room or in the same soundscape so panning is is, is your friend um understanding you know what volume does front to back what reverb does front to back all these things, what EQ, what dropping a little treble off of a sound will do, understanding and playing with all these different plugins, uh, you know, to help you understand what happens to that sound if I do this or do that. And then taking that knowledge and putting it together when you mix your scene. And that can help you. I mean, certainly if you want voices to prop, there's two tricks. One is compression. You know, compression will absolutely bring out all the nice texture in that recording. You know, we're going to assume that the the, vo- the voice recordings are, are good quality. But you know, again, we do this with music. You, you listen to a lead vocal; it's very present in the mix because lots of compression to bring out all the richness of the person's voice. And uh, another thing that uh, doesn't get a lot of attention is um, distortion. And I'm talking about slight harmonic saturation, not like, you know, sort of guitar, but you can add the saturation to a sound source a little bit at a time and suddenly it, it will become, even without any change in volume, a little bit more present in the mix. You know, those, those would be two tips that I would throw out. Dane, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I would say that uh, a lot of people don't utilize EQ cutting as much as they probably should when mixing. Uh, it's easy to get into 
EQ and start adding frequencies. But a lot of times if you begin to carve out spaces for vocals specifically in the overall mix, you can make everything punch through like in, in wordtastic, like Austin was saying, we have a lot of uh, teams spread out everywhere. And there's a, uh, there's an earpiece problem where we've got uh, pertinent information coming in through the earpiece and it's just this really isolated frequency. And we would have all this action going on in the background, like somebody's on a bike doing a backflip over ex an exploding tower or something. And you're supposed to hear what somebody's saying in an earpiece at the same time. And so you have to figure out how to carve out that frequency in the sound effect mix. And I'll automate uh, kind of a frequency cut during the lines so that they're able to punch through in the mix and you can hear the words and understand what's going on in the story. Um, so I would say, you know, a lot of people want to be able to apply like a bandaid on the, on the vocals here, they all sound uh, more clear now, but a lot of it is that uh, excruciating manual work that you have to do sometimes line by line. And uh, you're going to get what you put it. You're going to get out of it, what you put into it basically as a sound designer. Fair enough. And uh, I, you know, EQ is one of those things that is one of the most obscure to the average person. And it's, I think it's one of the most important. I'm still very much a newbie when it comes to really being able to do much with EQ, but it seems like that's really where the power comes from is understanding EQ. When you think about all these people writing Nyquist plugins and things like that. And back in the day when before there was digital audio stations, people did things like this for music you know, production by understanding all this stuff. So the more we can understand that, just like Michael's been saying, and the rest of you guys have been saying, the more we have, you know, we're actually in control of it instead of like, well, I got this preset and it kind of works. And if it doesn't, I don't know what to do. Um, you know, once upon a time, people made these plugins because they understood the tech. You don't have to do that. But the more you can get to that, the more versatile these tools will use and the more mastery you will have over your craft. For instance, uh, uh, Isotope, as part of their um, their RX uh, package, there's a, a deplosive that you can you can apply to your vocals. Right. Well, if you don't have Isotope, you can achieve the same process by rolling off everything below 120 hertz on your EQ. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So Damien DeGroote has a question. Any pointers on how to make reverb and dialogue sound realistic relative to how loud the person is speaking? Do you guys apply um, reverb to the original track or do you make a copy, apply reverb to that and then play with the levels? How do you guys deal with reverb? It's different for me based on the project. Um, if it's a more simplified project, I'll, I'll apply individual reverbs to individual characters, but sometimes I'll do more of a bus situation. Um, that's usually the easiest to work with because most audio dramas get to be pretty big because writers tend to, you know, build their story into something big. And so eventually uh, you're going to want to deal with a, a bus situation where you you're able to just uh, individually apply an overarching uh, reverb to, to different tracks and automate it that way. It's going to save you a lot of time and, and heartache trying to get everything to match properly. Yeah, the beautiful thing about using the bus, excellent, I'm glad you brought that up, Dane, is you can, you can, you send the audio from each track to that universal reverb bus, and you can adjust how much of the original signal for each track you're sending to the bus. So you can 
play around with the actual amount of reverb for each of the sound sources in that scene. And having a right. sync reverb for everything kind of unifies the soundscape and it all sounds like it's happening in the same place. And, and less is always more when it comes to reverb. Right. Yeah. So, and, and another thing you can also do, uh, like Michael was saying, you, you can add some coloration to your sound, a little bit of that distortion uh, to, to try and mesh all of the voices together and make them sound like they're in the same space and make them pop a little bit better. Uh, you can also do that with just a, a light reverb on your master to try and make it sound like a unified space. Uh, it doesn't have to be anything insane, but even just a little bit goes a long way in, in making it sound like a, a unified space for all the actors. Yeah, I try and to do it. Right. I was just going to build on what you had said previously to Michael uh, that uh, if you have, say, for instance, you're using a, a reverb bus that you're sending all your tracks to or whatever, uh, if you have a, a set reverb for the room, you can then tweak that setting slightly for different characters, which will create, you know, if you want a character standing further away from the point of view. You, you know, you add a little bit extra reverb to what's already there in the room and it'll make them sound like they're a little bit further away. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've never I, had a bus to play with, but um, I usually will make a secondary track, especially because I'll have the characters panned in various places. I'll have the reverb be more center because it's coming from all ports of the room. And then you can change the different volumes and stuff, which however you do it, and whatever you're working with, I think the biggest thing is that recognize the different voices will have different types of reverb. A, I did a scene with Bill Holwig and my stepdaughter, who has a very high-pitched voice in the same room. You apply the same reverb settings. They don't sound the same because a higher-pitched voice is not going to reverb as much as a lower-pitched voice. So you have to adjust those settings to make it right. sound like they're actually in the same place. So whatever you're going to do, don't apply a, a one-size-fits-all to your scene because it's, that's not going to work. It's got to be unique and however much fiddling you want to do and how much you can automate it, like with a bus or something like you guys described, that sounds really slick as opposed to me, where it's like each individual thing I spend an hour doing a two minute scene um, of just adjusting the, the echo. Um, Excellent point. Relate, related question from Andre. Besides reverb, how do you differentiate between inner thought and dialogue? That's the pretty, pretty standard one. Is that boring for people? Is there other things that are more effective? Um, you can do some voice doubling and stuff like that. And like Austin was talking about earlier, you can put different effects uh, that you would generally use for an instrument. Um, there are a bunch of different ways to differentiate or even just volume. Uh, you could have the, the narration just be more uh, radio quality booming with a with a bass and more in your face and warm like a studio and then when the the character's talking in world it's more of that realistic sounding voice where that bass is in his present uh, there's a few different ways but yeah sorry austin i was cutting you off oh i was just gonna say uh, as another example maybe uh using what uh, again the method that michael had brought up earlier maybe your inner dialogue is a uh, all spread out across the stereo, uh, the, the, the soundscape, and you know, uh, increase the volume, whereas your typical in-world dialogue would just be centered within the soundscape. Gotcha. Michael, do you have any thoughts on that? Or um, I'm thinking back, I haven't done too many uh, pieces that had any kind of narration or the head, the head voice, but two things. One, um, listening to things over the years, you can 
do a lot of different things for that. I, I hearken back to my days listening to Fireside Theater. And, and, and the, to me, they were like some of the masters uh, of, of, of working with sound you know, in that old radio play type of way, but making it, you know, much more modern. And, and they would, it would even bandpass that inner voice sometimes, which made it sound much more honky and almost like a deeper kind of telephone voice. But your, your mind quickly starts associating that because it's so different than the regular dialogue. Um, a little, I like to use a little delay. I don't want, I want a tight space. I want it, I always think I'm hearing it in that person's head. So a little bit of delay doesn't give you the expansiveness that reverb does. Um, uh, very, very low, very, very short delay time and very, very little feedback. And again, it's, it, and maybe I, I warm it up, raise the low mids up a little bit to give it a little bit more chest. And, and suddenly it does sound like maybe you're in the, the space of a cranium to hear what that person is thinking. Great. We have... Um... Couple comments and then one last question and then we will start to begin to close our session. Uh, clarification with Audacity. The original, and this is from Bill Chessman. Uh, the original wave is not actually changed. It's copied into the project. So that copy is what gets changed. So effectively you still have the base original wave file as it has always been, but the copy in the project is changed. That, that's my understanding as well, which isn't too much different from what you're saying, Michael. So I usually cut and paste it in. It doesn't actually change the original file. It just imports it. And then when you save it, that is the new thing that's getting modified. Right. But what that does mean is that you have to go back to the beginning if you start right. over. Well, I mean, there was a time, and I go back to, I don't know, 2005, 2006, mm -hmm. even pre, you know, doing the audio drama stuff with Audacity. And that's, I mean, it did destroy. Okay. Um, it did change it a few years right. after I, I switched over to Reaper that by default, it was not going to destroy your original. I'm sure yeah. they got feedback from users and that you could choose to 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 form or destroy or, or change your original, but by default it was absolutely using a copy and not in saving your original wave, which is I thought a great addition to the software. Great, and a comment from Sarah Golding. Thank you very much. Totally need to do an audio drama hub pub on compression and EQ. You're all amazing. Great panel. Thank you. And uh, let's see, do you have any favorite reverb plugins? This is another question from Andre. So anything that kicks ass more than just the standard stuff that most things come with? Well, there's there's a lot of really good ones. Um, I would say Reverberate would be one of my top picks because Reverberate's awesome. It's does it does impulse response reverbs. Uh, you can get a very natural sounding. Uh, it comes with a lot of uh, impulse response files that you can use to simulate everything from you know big cathedrals to small rooms, um, it, it's, and, and it has all this uh, built-in functionality with adding a little bit of delay, with adding, with shaping EQ of the reverb, which is very, very important. Uh, uh, I would say absolutely that would be my favorite. Cool. Yeah, to add on to that, I actually use Reverbate um, exclusively for reverb right now. So that's how good, good it is. Me too. <laughs> right on, cool. We've got five minutes left. Is there anything that you would like to say that hasn't been brought up that you would advise to anybody? And what are you currently working on right now? Where can people see something you'd like them to, to see going on? Um, who would like to start? I would just say uh, when you're building your soundscape, uh, 
barring, you know, setting aside your key sound effects that you're going to be using uh, when you're building the soundscape itself, just like we've, you know, I think it's, it's been mentioned during this conversation already. Just think of little things that you can add here and there that will help flesh out your space uh, so that it doesn't just sound static the whole time. Yeah, you, like Dane said, you do start with a, a loopable base, but then you add in little things here and there just to help flesh it out. Yep. Cool. Yeah, I would say, uh, like Austin's saying, just I would add one or two more passes to your sound design uh, process. Uh, go back. Yeah, stick, stick to the script. Make sure you have everything that you need to have in the scene. Make sure it's it makes sense. It's not confusing. But then go back and start to get creative with it. And that's when you can really set yourself apart from other uh, shows and other podcasts is when you add that little bit of extra, do an extra couple passes and just uh, bring it to that next level that people are craving, uh, that they get from cinema, that they, they want more in podcasting. Right on. Michael? Yeah, along the same vein, um, one thing, that, the, the best tip that I ever got um, that once I finally took the advice and used it uh, is using a reference material. Um, it's a lot easier when it's music, if I'm mixing a song for somebody and I can, I can say to them, help me understand what you're hearing in your head. So if you can give me a song where you just absolutely love the way the snare drum sounds, give me that. And then when I'm mixing, I can tailor the shape of the snare drum to sound more like what I'm hearing. And I can go back and forth, A, B it all the time. Because if you get into your own head sometimes, you can go off, way off track um, and, and not you know, come up with something. Um, it's good to have a target versus just sort of playing around and hoping you get a good sound. Um, right, and you, right. can, you can find, you know, listen to other shows. Um, you're not gonna steal from somebody, but if you like the way uh, a certain uh, engineer does uh, soundscapes or the way they do the background stuff, listen to that, find the things that you enjoy that match the, the kind of sounds you're hearing in your head and use that reference material to A, B against what you're doing to, to keep you on the right path to get to where you want to go. So we have one last question, and then uh, Jack wants me to put a link up in the chat as well. Um, answer this quickly, and then let us know uh, where we can uh, find your stuff right now. Does anybody have a favorite audio fight scene that they have worked on? Something that was just so cool or something that was just really neat? Um, I, I've done a few fight scenes, but I, probably it's not, it's not a fight scene. I know that's what you asked for, but probably my favorite scene that I've ever done uh, in the first episode of Darksend, uh, there's two characters that are riding in a car that, and the car gets crashed into. And at the moment of impact, the sound goes into slow motion. And obviously, I couldn't find a slow motion car wreck sound. So I ended up actually building the entire soundscape of the car wreck out of, uh, I believe it was 45 individual sounds. Uh, yeah, that, that that's probably that's my favorite. Nice. Yeah, and it sounded phenomenal. It sounds awesome. like a movie. It's pretty Thanks, amazing. Man. Thanks, Dane. How about you? Oh man, um, I actually just recently put together a a dinosaur attack scene, just for fun. It wasn't for anything. I was like, oh, I'd have these libraries. I want to mess with them. 
and I had a T-Rex come crashing through this crazy jungle and attack a stegosaurus and kill it. And it was, it was a blast. It was like a little kid, you know? Nice. Nice. Michael. And no fight scenes that I can remember. My favorite action scene, I guess, would be uh, two characters in HG world are, are running across a battlefield to try to, to save somebody but war has broken out all around them. So you've got machine guns, you've got single fire, you've got missiles exploding, you've got hand grenades, you have all this stuff just going on and to try to get it to all, you know, sound the way you would hear it, you know, on the big screen, it was a huge challenge, but when it was done, I just couldn't stop listening to it. So that would be my favorite. Great. And then very quickly, what are you guys working on now or what did you just work on that you would really love people to listen to? Michael, why don't we start with you? Um, I'm not working on any AD stuff right now. Um, yep. I'm mostly working on music. I'm in a band right now and we're producing our first EP. So that's my big project is uh, we're finishing the recording of that and, and mixing that to uh, a final product. Awesome. Cool. Genre? Progressive rock. Awesome. Oh, cool. Okay. Right on. Nice. Dane, how about you? Uh, you can find uh, all the Fool and Scholars stuff online. Just search for fool and scholar uh, they have a uh, vast horizon uh, white vault is the, the final season is going to be coming out towards the end of this year we're going to start releasing episodes for white vault right now we're i believe four episodes in on vast and its final season so we have a couple of shows wrapping up this year so that's kind of exciting and we have some new shows launching at the end of the year um so yeah dark dice all of the all of the fool and scholar stuff, as well as Wordtastic season two, is going to be coming out pretty soon. We're going to start dropping episodes, and uh, yeah, that's about it for me, Austin. Uh, like Dane just mentioned, uh, Wordtastic. That's the the thing that I'm at, at the moment the most proud of. Um, it, it's a, a, a family oriented uh, spy a secret agent spy show that with kids as the main characters. Um, you can find it. Uh, uh, just search uh, Wordtastic on uh, on any podcatcher. Uh, also, uh, Darksend. It's a uh, near future. Uh, uh, I would call it a, a a psychological science fiction horror kind of thing. Uh, I, and I'm also currently working on a, an upcoming uh, old west supernatural horror anthology called Grimstone Gap. Cool. Nice. Jack, I think we're, we're ready to uh, close this up if you're able to uh, say goodbye and uh, stop the recording. Thank you for listening to Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. We invite you to continue the amazing audio tomorrow on Mutual with the Monday Matinee. Our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio dramas. You can subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed every day for the world's largest curated collection of audio drama or find the Monday Matinee feed in your favorite podcast players. See you tomorrow at the Matinee and thanks so much for listening. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.